listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. The scripture this morning is from the 11th chapter of Daniel. I'll be reading verses 2 through 9 and then 29 to 35. Now I will announce the truth to you. Three more kings shall arise in Persia. The fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a warrior king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and take action as he pleases. And while still rising in power, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall grow strong, but one of his officers shall grow stronger than he and shall rule a realm greater than his own realm. After some years they shall make an alliance And the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to ratify the agreement. But she shall not retain her power, and his offspring shall not endure. She shall be given up, she and her attendants, and her child, and the one who supported her. In those times a branch from her roots shall rise up in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall take action against them and prevail." Even their gods, with their idols, and with their precious vessels of silver and gold, he shall carry off to Egypt as spoils of war. For some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall invade the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. At the time appointed, the king shall return and come into the south, but this time it shall not be as it was before. For ships of Ketim shall come against him, and he shall lose heart and withdraw. He shall be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay heed to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces sent by him shall occupy and profane the temple and fortress. They shall abolish the regular burnt offering and set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with intrigue those who violate the covenant, but the people who are loyal to their God shall stand firm and take action. The wise among the people shall give understanding to many. For some days, however, they shall fall by sword and flame and suffer captivity and plunder. When they fall victim, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join them insincerely. Some of the wise shall fall so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end, for there is still an interval until the time appointed. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And thank you for that reading, Jim. Before we dive in to uh, this confusing passage, I just want to give a quick reminder that in two weeks, and Alicia already mentioned it, on Sunday, May 23rd, I believe it is, we're going to be doing a live Q&A style sermon during the worship service. This is a really strange part of the Bible that we've been working through the last month, let's face it. Um, And so 
As questions arise, I want to encourage you to write them on those little yellow cards in your bulletin. I don't have my bulletin on me, but if anyone wants to get it out and shake it around, you can go for it. There you go. Thank you, Ann. Thank you, Eli. Write a question on there. You can drop it in one of the joy boxes out in the hallway, and then that will form the basis for our teaching on the 23rd. The title of today's message is A Clash of Kings and the Way of the Wise. Now, I spend way too much time and, and mental energy on these titles. I am a sucker for a good sermon title, and I am way too proud of this slide. I just have to own that right now. Um, I do have to ask, though, do we have any Game of Thrones fans who actually get this reference? We've, okay, a few, some. See, I never know with the pop culture references how they're going to land here. I think, I think there's a bit of a, a, a gender gap sometimes. But um, Clash of Kings is one of the books, did I say gender gap? I meant generation gap. Gee, sorry, sorry, Kurt, Kurt, look at me. Not a gender gap, generation gap. Gender gap's something different, that has to do with pay. Anyway, focus. Clash of Kings is one of the books in the Game of Thrones series. You actually had to read the books to get this reference. I watched it on HBO like everybody else, so if you missed it, that's okay. Um, But with this passage, I really couldn't resist this connection. Daniel 11 narrates this literal clash of kings, a war between kings. There's even a king of the north, right? It's like, it's like Jon Snow, you're in the Bible, right? See, some of us, some of us Game of Thrones fans get it. Just to catch us up, though, and give some context to this passage, uh, Daniel 11 is the midpoint of this final vision in the book of Daniel. Daniel was a Jewish refugee who lived about 2,600 years ago. Uh, He was taken from his home in his youth when Jerusalem fell to Babylon, and then he spent the rest of his life, some 70 years, living in exile. This is the same Daniel who was thrown into the lion's den. We've got a picture here. Um, That's from the first half of the book, and then the second half of the book of Daniel, what we've been working through for the last month, is this collection of dreams and visions. These sort of strange, but also sort of revolutionary anti-imperial visions of a future when God is going to show up to establish justice on the earth and bring an end to worldly empire. This is basically the original Rage Against the Machine, which there's another pop culture reference, which, well, we shouldn't see how many of you know that one. I'm going to be too depressed by that one, (laughs) but it's a band. It's okay. But this final vision, Daniel sees a war of a a vision of a war that's coming in the future. A war that then took place, we've got a map of it here, in the second century BC, so it was Daniel's future, our past, between a Greek king living in Syria, that's the king of the north, and another king who was ruling Egypt in the south, and God's people in the Holy Land were caught in the middle. That's the war that we're talking about. This was a really nasty war. This was bad. This got embedded really deeply in the memory of God's people. Um, this war shows up in the book of Maccabees. That's one of those books that like, our Catholic friends have in their Bibles, but we don't have in ours. But you get this little foretelling, this little foretaste of the story right here in Daniel 11. And it does kind of read like an episode of Game of Thrones. There's violence, there's war, there's betrayal, there's weird religious stuff. This is basically real-life Game of Thrones in the Bible. 
Now, if you've been following along with this series, this isn't the first time that we've encountered some kind of like random, obscure account of a war between kings that we've never heard of, right? Like this has been an ongoing thing. This has come up a few times in the book of Daniel. Just to recap this a little bit and refresh our memories, help us connect some of these dots. If you can remember all the way back in January, we talked about Daniel chapter 2. It's a story where King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has this dream about a massive statue that's made out of four parts. There's a a head of gold, um, the chest is silver, the legs are iron and stone. Does anyone like vaguely remember this dream about the statue? Some of us? Awesome. Excellent. For those who remember the dream, Daniel shows up and interprets it. Does anyone remember what these four parts of the statue stand for? If you remember, you can shout it out. Babylon, Persia, Greece, a bunch of kingdoms, right? It stands for this series of kingdoms that are going to basically rule the world and lord over God's people from the time of Daniel, basically, to the time of Christ. We identified them as Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Then in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a dream this time about four beasts that emerge out of the sea, these four monstrous creatures. Does anyone remember what they stand for, what they represent? Zach, go for it. That's right, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Do we see a connection here at all? Well, you're being sarcastic. It's kind of the same dream, right? Just different perspective. Then in chapter 8, we get a vision of two of these kingdoms, Persia and Greece, going to war with each other. It's represented by a ram and a unicorn goat. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And now here again in chapter 11, we get this same or a similar vision of the same war between Persian kings and Greek kings with God's people stuck in the middle. I know this means nothing to you, Right? Like, yeah, it means nothing to me, too. We don't teach this history anymore outside of, like, really obscure sermons and Bible studies. We don't cover this stuff in schools. But the book of Daniel was written by people who lived through this stuff. Jewish refugees who knew what it was to live at the mercy of these global empires, these massive military powers that were constantly waging war with each other. And as obscure as this all feels to us, Daniel is actually wrestling with a question that is really important. And it's a a question that's just as important today as it was 2,500 years ago. What does it look like to live faithfully in the midst of empire? Read that again. What does it look like to live faithfully in the midst of empire? In a world that is out of control, a world of violence and division, a world where powers rise and fall, where so much of life is determined by what team you're on, are you with them, are you with us, are you a friend, are you a foe, what does it look like to live faithfully in that? That's the question Daniel is grappling with. It's a question that followers of Jesus have been wrestling with for about 2,000 years, with, like, limited success, if we're honest. 
And we're going to get to Daniel's answer to that. We're going to get to the way of the wise in a few minutes. But first, I want to talk about some common ways that we see Christians answering this question today. Common ways that we see Christians living in relation to empire. We've seen this stuff throughout history. We see it in the time of Jesus. We see it in the time of Daniel. This stuff is as old as history itself. This is a really important, long-ranging historical question. How do we live faithfully in the midst of empire? To help to make this a little bit uh, more relevant, I want to talk about three different options, three common approaches to empire. They're up here. Uh, The way of withdrawal, the way of the sellout, and the way of the warrior. I'm sorry I couldn't think of a W word for sellout. The the way of the weasel. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Go with what you want. But let's talk through these three sort of flawed approaches to this question, and maybe the way of the wise will become a bit more clear through that process. And we'll start with the way of withdrawal. When the world gets scary, when the stakes are high and you're not really sure what to do, withdrawal is the easiest option. It's easy. You pull back. You retreat. You focus on spiritual things. Hang out with your Christian friends in your safe little, you know, kind of Christian community, Christian bubble. And just ignore all that scary stuff happening in the world. For Daniel, a Jewish refugee living in Babylon, this would look like keeping your head down and just ignoring what was going on in the community, in the society, in the world. Don't rock the boat. Be respectful. Give deference to the king. Survive. And if we're lucky, we'll all get to be together for worship on Sunday, and we'll get to forget about it for about an hour, right? For us today, I really think this looks like churches that have nothing to say about the pressing issues of our time. You go to church, you sing some songs, you hear a sermon about, I don't know, being a good person or something like that, and then you go about your day. I remember when we were living in California, um, Aaron and I went to a pretty diverse church. There were a lot of immigrants in the church. A number of folks were undocumented. And I can remember, and this was a few years back now, but I remember distinctly the week some news had broken about some of what was happening at the border, the family separations and all that, when that first kind of came on the scene. I remember that week there were people who were in tears before the service, so terrified of what might happen to them or to someone they knew. We did church. We sang some songs. We prayed. We heard a sermon. I don't remember what it was about. But what I do remember is there was not a single mention of what was happening on the border. Not one acknowledgement of what was on the heart (coughs) of most of the people in the pews. That's the way of withdrawal. When church, when your faith becomes just a a way to escape, to disconnect, a way to distract ourselves from all that scary stuff we'd rather not think about. It feels good for an hour on Sunday, but make no mistake, it is the road to irrelevancy. The way of withdrawal will leave you with a faith that is of very little help when crises arise. 
It's not the way of the wise that we see in Daniel. Another option we see in the church today is the way of the sellout. This takes a lot of different forms, um, but it's basically that old adage, if you can't beat them, join them, right? Like the world might be bad and scary. There might be corruption and immorality. But if we get on the side of the people in power, maybe they'll leave us alone. In fact, if we get on their good side, maybe they'll even share some of that power with us. This is a big temptation, right? Think about all the people in Babylon who bowed down to worship the king while Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, stood there like this, right? Or think of the Sadducees, the, uh, the temple authorities in Jerusalem. These folks who aligned themselves with Rome and profited from the exploitation of their own people. Do you guys remember that story from Palm Sunday where Jesus goes into the temple and he starts flipping over tables? He gets like a whip and he's waving it all around. This is what he was upset about. This is what was going on. The religious elites of his day had aligned themselves with those in power, and the folks at the margins were suffering. When Christians align ourselves with the powers that be, when we turn a blind eye to evil, we are playing with fire. We talk a lot here about the threat of, of Christian nationalism, this dangerous blurring of the lines between national identity and religious identity, when like being a good American and being a good Christian are indistinguishable from each other. That is a very dangerous place to be historically. It's not the way of the wise that we see in Daniel. There's a way of withdrawal and the way of the sellout, but what about the way of the warrior, this third option? We don't see as much of this in the book of Daniel. The Babylonians were way too strong for anyone to really mount like an armed defense. But we do see this sort of thing in the story of Jesus with the zealots. If you read through the Gospels, every once in a while you run into the zealots. Uh, there's Simon the Zealot who pops up in the Gospels. Uh, Judas, a lot of folks, a lot of historians think Judas might have been a zealot or something similar. The zealots were basically like a Jewish Al-Qaeda, if that is even possible. Um, it was this religiously motivated political party uh, in ancient Judea that was dedicated to the violent overthrowing of Rome. That was the zealots. If the temple authorities thought Jesus was too radical, the zealots thought he was too soft. Not willing to use violence. Fight fire with fire. They hit us, we hit back harder. That's the way of the warrior. And unfortunately, it's something that we see more and more from Christians today as well. You even hear folks using the language of, of culture war. I remember a few weeks ago, this friend of mine who's a Christian and, and a proud, like, self-declared culture warrior, they were engaged in a debate with an atheist friend of mine on one of my Facebook posts. Because social media is the best place for, like, thoughtful dialogue and debate, right? <laughs> but I remember this, this Christian friend of mine was debating an atheist friend of mine. I don't remember what it was about, but I do remember the tone, and it was awful. 
It was so nasty, name-calling, spite, no one really coming at it with good faith. And this Christian friend of mine was the worst offender. Like, I remember I was reading through this comment thread, and I was thinking, like, man, I agree with the Christian, but the atheist sounds more like Jesus, which is a weird place to be. I ended up deleting the whole post because it was just not worth keeping on the Internet. And then I sent a message to my friend, the Christian one, the culture warrior. And I was like, hey, that exchange got kind of ugly. You do realize the person you're debating isn't a Christian, right? And this friend of mine was like, yeah, so what? And I wrote, maybe I missed a day of Sunday school. But if I'm not mistaken, our first responsibility toward non-Christians is to love them and share the love of Christ with them. And I didn't see any of that in your posts. And I will never forget this friend of mine, this Christian friend, said to me, I'm not trying to share the love of Jesus with them. I'm trying to win. I'm trying to win. That's not the way of Jesus, guys. That's not Christianity. That's something else. Something dangerous. Jesus didn't call us to defeat our enemies, to crush them, to triumph over them. Jesus called us to love them, period. Anything short of that is not the gospel. And it's not the way of the wise. That's enough of a tease. What does it look like to live faithfully in the midst of empire? What is the way of the wise? In a, in a world like ours that is so violent, so polarized, where people are so quick to draw lines and divide themselves every single day, what does it look like to faithfully follow Jesus? In the middle of this clash of kings, Daniel paints us a picture talks about the way of the wise, this small community of God's people who stuck in the middle of all this violence chart a different path. Check this out. Daniel 11, verse 32. It should be on the screen. He, the king, shall seduce with intrigue those who violate the covenant. But the people who are loyal to their God shall stand firm and take action. The wise among the people shall give understanding to many, for some days, however, they shall fall by sword and flame and suffer captivity and plunder. When the wise, when they fall victim, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join them insincerely. Some of the wise shall fall so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end. That's not much to go on, right? <laughs> and, and what is there doesn't, doesn't sound great, right? Um, falling victim, receiving a little help, falling by sword and flame. I think I'll take the way of the warrior, think, right? <laughs> Anyone else feel this way? Yeah, we got a couple. But as vague as this is, we have actually seen the way of the wise on display throughout the book of Daniel. And we've seen it in Daniel and his friends. These refugees who remained faithful. So what is the way of the wise? 
For one, instead of withdrawing, we see over and over again that Daniel engages his community seeking the peace of everyone. Daniel engages his community seeking the peace of everyone. When Daniel gets to Babylon, he doesn't just like keep his head down and stay out of trouble. He takes a job in government, right? He takes a job working for the king who just overthrew his people. He becomes a public servant. He learns the culture. He learns to speak the language. He basically becomes a missionary to the place that just conquered him. And he does it all to seek the good of everyone for the glory of God. Sometimes people have asked me questions like, um, can Christians be patriotic? Is it okay for a Christian to love their country? Is it okay for a Christian to vote? Can we uh, run for office? Can we serve in other forms of secular leadership? I hope the answer to all those things is yes. Yes, Christians can be patriots. Just don't root for the patriots. <laughs> Sorry. That's a good joke to use here, right? See, ah, yes, yes. Go Bills. I'm a Steelers fan. Sorry. Um, yes, Christians should be patriots. Christians should be the best citizens. We should be the best neighbors, the most deeply engaged in our communities. The answer to all those questions should be yes. That's the way of the wise, to seek the peace of your community to the glory of God. Instead of selling out, Daniel remains faithful, refusing to compromise his faith when it counts. Daniel makes a lot of concessions to Babylon, right? He takes on a new name. He adopts the culture. He blends in visually, but he never compromises his faith, not once. He is loyal to the king, but he never lets that loyalty obscure his loyalty to God and God's kingdom. Daniel never allows his patriotism to become worship. He respects the king enough to challenge him. Daniel meets the Babylonians where they're at, but he never compromises his character. He never once employs violence to get what he wants. And he takes stands when he needs to, even if it means being thrown to the lions. And that brings us back to the way of the warrior. Because Daniel is a warrior of sorts. He's brave. He's just not the kind of warrior we're used to seeing. Instead of waging a culture war and trying to defeat his enemies, Daniel loves his enemies, accepting persecution as a possible consequence of faithfulness. I want to read that one again. Instead of waging a culture war, Daniel loves his enemies and accepts persecution as a possible consequence of faithfulness. The culture war mentality that is gripping so many people in the church right now has its origins in fear. Fear of losing influence. Fear of surrendering privilege. 
fear of forfeiting whatever cultural power the church used to have. But Daniel tells us that some of the wise will fall. And that when they fall, they will be refined, purified, and cleansed. Friends, we're not going to be refined if our goal is to win. If our goal is to crush our enemies and be proven right, to get our way, that sort of attitude assumes that we are in the right, that we've arrived, and it's the world that needs to be purified to catch up to us. That isn't the way of the wise. The way of the wise is to realize that we need to be refined. We need to be purified and made new. We need to conform our lives more to the likeness of Christ. And that's not always going to work out well for us. If you follow Jesus, you're going to stand out. If this church joins Christ in standing with the least of these, that is not going to be a popular choice. You might end up loving your enemy only to have them stab you in the back. It's easier to fight. It's easier to wage a culture war and go for the win, but winning is not the point. Faithfulness is the point. This is what it looks like to live faithfully in the midst of empire. This is the way of Daniel. It's the way of Jesus, who clearly read Daniel. I think there was some influence here. And this is the way of the wise. Let's pray. God, give us wisdom. Help us as a church and as individuals to embrace this countercultural, revolutionary way of love. Lord, help us to engage our community, to seek the well being of everyone to your glory. Give us wisdom to discern when we do need to draw a line and refuse to compromise. And God, deliver us from the fear and the anxiety that pushes us to win at all costs. Instead, Lord, empower us to love like Christ loved us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.